HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Sari Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Guys, that's right. You are hearing the voice of the, the sweet angelic voice of Bobby Comforto on today's intro. Hello, Bobby. Hi, Zara. This was such a special episode. Wasn't it exciting? It was very exciting. We are joined today, guys, our guest today is the incomparable, the one and only, you know him, you love him, Andrew Zimmern, um, an amazing chef, advocate, uh, TV personality, writer, activist, um, an all-around... Anthropologist, sociologist, right? He really... Yeah, that's a good this, point. Yeah. Anthropology of food and, um, and the social structure of food. It's a fascinating person. A really fascinating person, and it was a wonderful chat. And Andrew has so much. He's so smart. Um, I think that's the, was my biggest takeaway about getting the opportunity to meet him and chat with him. Is just very active brain and yes. has you know really intense feelings about things, and was very open and vulnerable as he you know has been in the past um, about sharing his experiences with addiction and alcoholism and drug addiction and houselessness and recovery. And he spoke very candidly about that, which is, which is huge and was really wonderful. I think what was one of the most exciting things for me was that we shared um, a real similar social consciousness, Mm. you know, because it wasn't just about um, his journey and it wasn't just about the food industry, but it was about a real sense of social consciousness in these times. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew has done a lot to kind of try to help the restaurant industry in this time when it is really falling apart and falling through the cracks. And he's been one of many uh, chefs and restaurant uh, restaurateurs who and food writers who have used um, their influence to really try to do what they can to help the restaurant industry. And that is greatly appreciated. Um, obviously our in- industry is being decimated and that's something we talk about a lot in this episode is like, like yes. pretty much the focus is like, you know, we talked a lot about the grief that we are collectively collectively experiencing as an industry and, you know, kind of what folks can do to kind of manage that and how to cope with grief that came upon millions of people overnight um, yes. with the loss of, of a really important industry and family because restaurants you know, the old Olive Garden saying rings true when you're here, your family. And so it's very hard to figure out how to how to move on and move yeah. forward, I should say. Yes. Yeah. So this was a great chat and we hope that you enjoy it. We 
absolutely had such a beautiful, wonderful time um, chatting with Andrew. And we were so grateful to him for his time. We know he's a very busy guy and it was great to have him. And yeah, it was great. Bobby, any final thoughts on Chef AZ? Um, I guess I was I was really taken by um, the positive perspective he had on the future of the restaurant. And I mm. found that I think the listeners are going to find that unbelievably hopeful because in a time of um, you know trauma that we're all going through, the restaurant business is going through, certainly it's good to hear a voice of hope. That's very true. That's very true. All right, guys. Well, with no, without any further ado, actually, I do have some further ado. Um, I just want to remind everyone that we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show. We'd love to hear your listener letters. We'd love to, you know, anything you want to tell us. And also if you'd like to be, um, perhaps a guest on an upcoming episode, if you have a story about food and grief, you'd like to share and potentially be a guest on processing, please go ahead and send us an email to processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Also, you can head over to heritageradionetwork.org and become a member. We are listener-supported radio. Um, and if you still have more time, could you please uh, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it really helps it uh, helps us reach more ears. Ooh, a barking dog. See, even Bobby's dog, Bo, agrees that you should rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. That was perfectly timed, Bo. Rate, roof, review. <laughs> You're so cute. Mom, are you the cutest person that ever existed? Is it possible? <laughs> I at think moments, it is. Zara, at moments. <laughs> yes, at moments. Um, no, you're the, you're the best. Okay, guys. Um, Bobby, I love you. Love you too, sweetie. Oh, wait. One more thing. I want to mention that um, Bobby and I yesterday shared some treats from a former guest, one of our very favorite people, Jess Quinn, who was one of our earliest guests. Um, her and her wife have a pop-up now called Dacha. D-A-C-H-A. You can find them on Instagram at D-A-C-H-A underscore one nine four six. And we had pocket pies. And Bobby, was it the best puff pastry we ever had? Best puff pastry, yes. Crispy, flaky. Savory, savory pastry. Savory pastries. They're making all kinds of stuff like Eastern European, wonderful, delicious, beautiful, heartfelt food. So um, if you are hungry and you want to have the best food of your life, head over to Dacha and you can order from them on Instagram. Okay. That's it for real this time. Enjoy our interview with Andrew Zimmern. Today, guys, we are joined by chef, restaurateur, food critic, TV personality, content creator, teacher, writer, children's book author, which I thought was really amazing. Hopefully we can chat about that. And host of one of my favorite shows ever, Bizarre Foods, a show about community and eating together, chef Andrew Zimmern. Andrew, hi. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Processing. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you. So we are recording this and we have just finished Thanksgiving. Um, mm-hmm. A kind of weird holiday to begin with in a weird in a weird year. And like, you know, I'm kind of catching myself saying like a weird year because it is weird to us. But there's so many people who live in this type of situation, you know, with grief and sickness and food insecurity and houselessness all the time. So it is weird to us, but it's also, I'm just trying to catch myself from being like, it's a weird year. It's, it, it, it's difficult to talk about anything uh, of import these days in a, in a sort of gotcha cancel culture that for some reason has lost its ability to be patient and kind with other people. Um, just because you happen to call it a weird year, for example, doesn't mean that uh, at least for me, that I don't assume that you understand that, yes, this there are people who live in these circumstances all the time. Um, I, I said something a couple of months ago. Uh, I'm, I'm very angry with America right now for the, the pandemic uh, crisis times eight that we're in. Um, I've, I've had family members have COVID. I have, uh, at one point, I couldn't see my own child for four months. Um, uh, I've had friends die. 
And other people are just willy nilly, just like wandering around as if they don't understand third grade biology. And I know they were in that class. I know they understand this is a virus that has no cure currently. I know that they understand that viruses spread and then double and double and double. And for a while, it is kind of hidden and invisible. And then it hits that log phase where it just becomes this soaring nightmare. And people can't stay stay put and stay where they are, those that can af- afford to. And I understand the, the crisis of conscience with people deciding between food on their table for their kids and jobs, right? Which right. is why I'm angry at the government for not handing out checks to every person in America, which they should have done in March. But I made the comment uh, a a while ago, and I I still love saying it because it causes all kinds of controversy. As a Jew, Anne Frank stayed in an attic for two years. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what the holy... (laughs) Frick are people talking about? There was such a great meme going around. I'm not a meme guy, but I saw one. And for whatever reason, I clicked on it. It played this little minute video. And it said, essentially, if your great grandfather was born in 1900, right? Here's what his life was like, right? As a teenager, World War I, as a young adult, uh, the Great Depression, uh, prime of his life, World War II, uh, senior years, Cold War and Korean War, you know, as he's trying to enjoy his sunset years, Vietnam War, civil rights, like, like really big, heavy duty shit. And, and there was... The, the complaining now about wearing a mask. Oh I know it's gosh. unbelievable. It's so, and, yeah. So it's, it is weird. It is strange. Thanksgiving is both my favorite holiday and one that I have a, a, a real uh, problem grappling with um, simply because the historical mythology around it right, exactly. is, yeah. is, you know, we're teaching kids in schools that pilgrims came in and, you know, hugged Native Americans and sat down and had a meal. And that never happened. And I I love taking time to be grateful. That's why I mm. love Passover. Right. You know, it's it's a food centric holiday that's about gratitude and about coming that's together and spending, yeah. spending time with your your loved ones and no gifts and um Thanksgiving shares that, but it it's 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 it was tough any year. It's even tougher this year. And totally. so many Americans, so many Americans are doing without. So many people around the world are doing without. We don't recognize enough that they're, you know, eating well in America is a class privilege. And Absolutely. you know, we've now taken another 20, 30 million Americans that were above the poverty line and they've plunged beneath it because of C19 and growing. Uh, so this is a this is a horrible horrible year, a horrible time. Um, what's the Latin? Uh, I, I hope it's Latin. If it's not Latin, it's Greek. No, I think it's Latin. Uh, Annus horribilis, right? <laughs> the, the, the awful year, like everyone has one, yeah. right? I mean, this yeah. has been a national Annus horribilis. Yeah, it really has. And, you know, we spoke last week about the kind of intersection of food and grief surrounding the holidays, which can also like already be so triggering for so many people who have just experienced grief in their lives or are currently grieving. Um, And then add on to it just this, you know, having to be alone and really focusing on like on loss. And actually, I was talking about the other day to somebody how the end of the year is very interesting because I think we you know, there's so many celebrations typically and parties and holidays and all of this, yeah. but really it's also a year ending. You were forced the to assessment really think of the about year, the perspective of what's happened in a year. Right. It's, yeah. it's thinking, taking stock and all the things at an end of the year that have ended, which is mm-hmm. like, I think subconsciously very traumatic to us. We, we don't often think about it because we're, you know, shoving all kinds <laughs> of things in our faces and celebrating, <laughs> right. which is great too. But yeah. so what did you do this year to to honor Thanksgiving. What was your Thanksgiving like? Uh, I was alone in my house with, you know, one other human being and ate a meal. Um, I gave well, away you, a lot of food. You cooked nice. the meal too. So that's, I did. that's one I did. of the most important that's parts, my, right? Well, it's my yoga. Yes, mm. me too. I call it my you meditation. Know, it, it Absolutely. Is, it is. I, when you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said about uh, cooking as a meditation, but it it 
I, I have a brain that's, you know, uh, it, uh, cliche 101. It's a very dangerous neighborhood. I don't like to go in there alone. So oftentimes <laughs> during my day as I'm walking around, I'm, I'm you know, besotten with these horrific thoughts and feelings. And, uh, you know, I'm in, in many ways, I'm a, a, a very polished person on the outside and look very successful. Internally, I think of myself as a fucking mess 99% <laughs> of the time. But the difference Same. between me and a lot of other people is that is that 98% of the time that I'm feeling like I'm a fucking mess, I actually do something about it, mm -hmm. right? And I've, right. I have a, a set of tools mm -hmm. that I use. And one of them is cooking. The other mm -hmm. one is playing catch. Mm -hmm. you, you, you can't hold a knife in your hand and be cutting onions and be thinking about a conversation that you had with someone earlier because your brain won't let you. Your brain wants you to not cut yourself. That's right. Like Andrew, that's catch. why I that's why I call of uh, cooking and meditation because the definition of meditation is losing your mind. So we need a place to lose our mind. We need several places to lose our mind because right. this gets so busy up there. That's so tell right. us about catch. You were telling us. No, it's uh, and, and we actually get rid of those things. And usually, when I'm done with that. I'm actually looking at the problem differently. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I'm, I'm not in it the same way. Um, I, I, love the, I love learning about sort of the technical aspect about how the brain works and then sort of like the spiritual aspect about how the brain works. And I find there's an awful lot of overlap. Um, yes. Somehow the ancients, without knowing that we had a prefrontal cortex that handled a certain type of thinking and an amygdala buried inside of it that handled a different type of thinking, our lizard brain fight flight, I'd freeze, find freeze, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, without knowing that they, you know, the, the wisdom of, you know, timeless spiritual truths sort of figured that out and, and got us into other practices. I mean, there's no other explanation, uh, for it. And so I find, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And, you know, obviously I'm very public about being, uh, 29 years sober, uh, from drugs and alcohol, but I've really spent a lot of time over the last uh, 12 years uh, doing a lot of work on my emotional sobriety. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. That is that is a uh, a vital element uh, in my own uh, recovery and my own wellness. Uh, without which, I'm 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 not sure that I would be sober. I mean, it, it, mm. I, I got really scared when I was. 15, 16, 17 years sober, uh, when a couple of guys that I'd looked up to for a long time that were 20 to 25 years sober, a couple of them relapsed. And there's a great story in, in some of the recovery literature about the guy that's been sober a long time, retires from work, and out comes the bottle and the carpet slippers, right? And I right. was like, I never want to be that guy, right? So I do all these things to take care of myself and my sobriety. It, but for a long period of time, I was still dealing with the same six or seven character defects. They just had different forms every year. Now, it was great. Down from 100, right? Right. Uh, 50 of them went away the day I put a cork in a bottle, right? You no longer get scared when the cops roll up on your tail because totally. you don't have drugs or alcohol in the car, right? So that's okay, that just goes away because I'm dry. Right. You actually work at sobriety and other 50 things. So eventually you whittle it down to like, here's, here's what I do when I'm in trouble. And I do these same four or five, and they take on different faces all the time. And I got scared. I really wanted to do something about them. And I, with the help of some folks, I, I learned uh, that uh, it was my, and luckily I had done a lot of inventory over the years, um, my issues with intimacy and my issues with, uh, trauma were, I, I had done my step work on them. I put them in a box with a bow and I put them in the attic of my, you know, life. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was done with them, but they weren't done with mm -hmm. me. Of course. And so I needed to do more work on them so that I had more, more tools. And, you know, I, was what modality that, did you look at? What modality well, helped you? I, I actually, uh, I really get into going away different places and working on myself in a group and private session combined. 
And so, uh, you know, shameless plug, I had incredible success going to on-site uh, down in Tennessee, uh, more than on-site workshops, an incredible, incredible place of healing. Uh, the Rio Retreats out at the Meadows, uh, about an hour outside of Phoenix, just up in the hills, um, another incredible place of healing. Uh, Hazel and Betty Ford, an hour up the road from where I live, uh, where I went to treatment 29 years ago, uh, it has incredible programs. And these are, these are places where you can go uh, three to five days and uh, work on different issues. And if you, you get what you put into it, I mean, exactly. it's just understanding yourself. It's about understanding yourself. And you were talking about the attachments and traumas of our life leave an imprint and we have to understand, I call That's it the right. lenses of perception, that just the way when we have a pair of glasses, that we there's lenses of all our experiences in life, and some of them are warped or cracked. We just have to understand those and take them out, understand them, so we have clearer perspective of this incredible life that we do have. Yeah, I, That's not I think slanted. that, I, you know, I... I I love everyone has their metaphors that work for them. And I love that one. I'm going to steal it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, all my best stuff is stolen. Of course. I've I never had so. an original <laughs> thought in my life. Uh, but the, the, what I didn't know, what really impacted me the most when I started to dive into the trauma work was this idea that trauma not transformed is transmitted mm-hmm. and the to- the toxicity, the toxic nature of trauma you know, I, I don't want to say it's uh, unique, but for me, I have to look at it as being unique because of it course. is such a. You mean um, unique to each person? Well, it's a story shaper in it's my a life. Story. We're and, talking about stories, and, exactly. And it is. It is the the traumas that we endure. If we do not work on them, we will transmit them to our family. There are certain people. I, I don't know if anyone is into the crown. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to be. <laughs> I, I watched the, the Crown, and yeah. you know the, the 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 Windsors are like the all time most messed up family I've ever seen. I mean, absolutely. every generation is like, you know, what does it take to get a hug or some kindness <laughs> around here? And eventually, <laughs> Charles, who is you know comes off as kind of a deplorable character uh, in the in the show for a lot of different reasons. You have incredible empathy for him when he sits down in the last episode. I don't, I'm not really giving anything away Spoiler. here and tells his, you know, mom, and he, and he uses the word mommy for the yeah. first time. He previously called her mother and all these other words, but he says, mommy, I need to talk. And she's like, you know, great. Let's stand like I do with my privy counselors. So we keep it short. And just the, I mean, the the look on this actor's face, the the crushing nature of that. And you know, from if you've been watching, remember back to season one, Elizabeth, it, similarly treated by her uh, her father, right? Absolutely. Well, and yeah. the, 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 the trauma that's not transformed being transmitted, you pass what, it on. What we resist persists. And yep, that's totally. another simple way of putting it, the well, layers. There's actually science that proves that like, there's been uh, like, studies that prove that trauma is actually inherited through DNA. A lot yes. of work's been done through Holocaust survivors. Our, our, my grandmother, Bobby's mom, was a Holocaust survivor. And the trauma and anxiety of that definitely it's the imprint. Can, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's also I mean, it, it, generational. The trauma is generational. It's generational and imprints on a cellular, cellular level. And it is, it does take a lot of work to be like the buck kind of stops here. Like I'm not willing to then pass this on to my children. And, you know, it's lifelong work. I was just chatting with someone this weekend who's kind of just begin, begun their work in self-discovery and uh, after having a traumatic kind of upbringing. And, you know, it just never ends. You know, there's no like, well, I'm going to start this and then eventually I'll get better. But I mean, it's the work of life. It is, it the, is work the work of, of our life is, to heal yeah. so that we can be more present and we can be Absolutely. more clear. Absolutely. Andrew, and, I'm yeah. curious. So we, we kind of veered off, but I really wanted to kind of ask more about, so cooking is your yoga. Cooking is your meditation, right? And uh, one of them. That, one of them. Well, when did that kind of when did that start for you? When did you realize that the cooking was your yoga and your meditation? Where did that kind of all begin for you? Uh, well, it started when I was five, uh, wow. but I didn't realize that until 
20 some odd years ago. Mm. Um, we all, as culinarians, once you reach a certain point, the, the one question every reporter asks you is, you know, where did you first learn to cook? Mm-hmm. And they're just delighted that everyone says the same thing. You know, my grandmother taught me to cook. Yeah. And it's such a charming <laughs> sort of postcard totally. hallmarky moment. Um, yeah. my, my father uh, was born late in his parents' life. And I was born late in my father's life. So when I was three, four, five, six years old, uh, my grandmother was 81, 82, 83, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like Grandma Zimmern could take me to the park and like play games with me or push me on the swing, right? Right. Uh, She was uh, much, much older. So what she did is I would sleep over at her house on Saturday nights once a month. And I would get dropped off by my mom or dad and, uh, you know, like I'd have lunch at my house and then get dropped off at one o'clock. And I would go with my grandmother and we would go up and down Broadway with her little push carts and stop in all the different uh, stores that were up there where she was treated like a deity. She was the president of the Mount Naboa Synagogue Sisterhood oh my God. Uh, in wow. the 60s. And so it was the, you know, right around the corner from Zabar's. I mean, you know, oh. in, in our world, you know, she was like, everyone knew my grandmother. Amazing. And so I got all these little treats and bissels and snacks and goodies every time we went walking around everywhere. Activating the senses. Yeah. And then we'd go back to her apartment and at some point she'd make me dinner But all night long, I would sit on this stool in this tiny little kitchen in her apartment on West End Avenue, and she would cook all afternoon and into the evening. Then we'd watch the news and go to bed. And we'd get up, and we'd start reheating and cooking some more. I would watch, you know, uh, cartoons or whatever Sunday morning. And uh, then at like 1130, family would start to arrive. 20 people would fill the apartment. We'd eat all the food that was consumed. And then I'd go home with my parents. and it, I realized, you know, that's where I, I learned my first dishes. Uh, eventually, she let me help her make food. I got excited about it. Um, but it was also when my, you know, my parents divorced when I was five. Uh, I was over at my grandmother's, uh, not by, uh, I mean, out of necessity, it was the, the drop off point. Both my parents could have a date night. You know, it was, I mean, they were, as an adult, you come to realize that exactly what was going on. And, um, so in a sense, even sitting on that stool, it was a, uh, a meditation, a yoga for me, right? It was the healthy roots growing. And it just kept, it just kept expanding from there. Um, now, I, I got, uh, I chose to hear uh, what I wanted to hear in my, uh, in my youth to the point where I, I really became a, uh, someone who felt that what other people said and thought were meaningless, that I had the answers to everything, that I was the smartest person in the room. There was a lot of I, 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 Mm. I, I going on. So when I, after a couple of, you know, relatively good sized family tragedies, um, I turned to drugs and alcohol and it, it took me away from everything. And of course, some recovering people have low bottoms. Some have high bottoms. I had a very, very, very low bottom, uh, that wound up with me being homeless for a year and then uh, trying to kill myself in a hotel room before I sobered up. And then uh, eventually in January of 1992, uh, was able to get sober and stay sober. Um, it, but the, those early experiences cooking formed who I was, what my desire was. Um, by the time I was eight or nine, my my parents, everyone in my family knew that I was going to be in the food business. Wow. Somehow. What, what, what kind of things were you making when you were eight or nine? Like, <laughs> oh, I would curiosity. cook with my mom all summer long endlessly. I loved, I loved cooking. I love spending that time with my parents. I love the transformative nature of food. Yeah. I mean, you start out with a bunch of ingredients and then it all comes together in this right. bowl or dish or roaster or whatever it is. But then you actually place it in front of another human being and mm. they take a bite and they roll their eyes and Absolutely. they look at you and they're just like, wow, this is great. You get sort of instant 
uh, gratification. Yeah, it's, it's the good love. For the... It's instant love transferred back and yeah, forth. And it's and it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's good for the ego. I mean, in the the good sense of the ego, right? Then we need to as we're growing to feel like we have purpose and that kind of, I mean, I, I share the same thing. I'm a chef and I have the same memories of being young and like eight, seven, eight, nine years old and realizing that you can make something for someone and it pleases them. Cafe set up outside. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you feel like you fit, you know, and I think feeling Mm. like you fit in this world, it's really meaningful and it's really hard to do. And I, when you realize that's your purpose too, when you realize it's your purpose to cook, like that's something you can do. You have a way to, to reach out that way. Yeah. And I think life is, life can be lonely, even uh, for kids, you know? And I think when you realize that there's something that you can do that you don't have to be lonely or like, you know what I mean? And I don't think as children, we're necessarily putting these pieces together, but it's something that I've kind of thought of this way as I've gotten older and realized why cooking is pleasurable to me, but also very deeply important and soul satisfying. I think because it's like my means of fitting into this world. And I think for a lot of other people, their means of fitting into this world too. And then interestingly, as we go along into professional cooking, you know, we find a lot of folks who might otherwise be misfits or not have another place where they feel like they fit in. And cooking is this kind of, is this unifier in that way that I, I have always thought is very interesting. I I think you're absolutely right. And I know that in my teen years, I used it both for selfish means and for uh, Mm. self-soothing. When I turned 14, I asked my father for uh, an allowance raise. And he laughed at me and I was like, what's so funny? He goes, you're not getting any allowance. There's no allowance raise. Your allowance days are over. That's for little kids. Go get yourself a summer job. And I was horrified at that uh, idea. But like usual, I was like a screw you. I'm going to, I'm going to go, you know, get a job and be good at it. And, you know, I'll show you. And that's, that's pretty much been my modus operandi my whole life. (laughs) And, uh, I went and I got a job in a restaurant Mm. and my friend said to me like, what are you crazy? And I was like, no, you're crazy. The 10 of you are all getting jobs, you know, like, uh, serving people at the, uh, um, at the country club or uh, busing tables or, or the mall I mean, store, whatever it is that you're, <laughs> right. you're, you're doing. And a lot of them were working at the um, uh, uh, landscaping companies where you were mm. you know, wheeling around wheelbarrows of manure yeah. and getting up <laughs> at five in the morning. And I was like, that's crazy. I'm spending my day on the beach where there's, you know, people smoking weed and I can look at girls and I can totally. swim in the ocean. Jump and then beach? at night, I'm, and, and then at night I'm going to work in a restaurant, you know, right. and, uh, our family friends, uh, owned a seafood restaurant, uh, that I got a job and I worked there summers, uh, you know, 14, 15, 16, uh, by the time I was 17, I graduated with a different rest, but those first three years working at this clam bar. That was out East, right? Uh, yes, uh, it was called the uh, Quiet Clam. It yeah, was I remember when you Montauk. said it because we're from Long Island. I'm in on, uh, Huntington right now. Zara's oh, right, in Brooklyn, on, but, yeah, right yeah. on. It was on Montauk uh, Highway. Highway just before you entered uh, in between Bridgehampton and East Hampton. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, and it was uh, it was the best job in the whole world. And I fell in love with restaurants then yeah. and there. I mean, full stop. Yeah. So, okay, talking about falling in love with restaurants, right? So we know that like in your kind of early teens and through your teens, you had issues with drug addiction and stuff. And it kind of brings me to something that you've spoken about, but I think is an important thing to talk about in general, but also just about now. Because I think, you know, what's happening now with restaurants, the industry being kind of decimated is people are losing their their hideout, not only their job, but their community, their hiding space. And you've talked about a restaurant as being a place to hide out. Now, I think that's both a positive and a negative thing, right? Because it gives you the opportunity to hide out and maybe hide your demons and continue to feed your demons. Um, There's obviously historically a lot of drug abuse and use and alcoholism and misogyny and all kinds of things in restaurants. Um, But it's also a place where I think, as was kind of mentioning before, where people feel held and part of a community where they might not otherwise have been held. Family. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I had a guy that worked for me years ago who I knew had a really, really, I mean, several people, this one stands out, who had a really, really tough time at home, really like had a lot of kids and, you know, a wife that he didn't really get along with. I knew when he came to work, it was like the highlight of his day. It was his escape. So basically Family my question is like, yeah. 
Yeah. When you started working in restaurants and kind of fell in love with it, was it because this felt like a place where you could, I mean, you've mentioned a place where you could hide, but it was, was it at also a place where you felt, um, like being a misfit was okay. Like what was that experience with you and why did you kind of fall in love with restaurants? 100% on both counts. Uh, number one, I love the theater of it. Mm. Every night was, it was one of those jobs where every night was different. Yeah. Service was different every single night. Um, uh, so that was, that was key. Uh, I also had uh, a natural affinity for the work, which meant that I was successful in getting positive feedback. So as a teenager, that was important. Um, I felt like a raindrop entering the river. Hmm, I, there were, you know, crazy people there. And I realized this is my tribe. This is where they are. <laughs> They're in restaurant and they love food too. And it's like everything that was important to me, these people also found important. And working so hard, right? Working yes, hard. And I felt very much held. Right. Mm. And like sports, you know, during those busy three, four hours of the day or on weekends when you're prepping before dinner and then add on the three, four hours of service that are really peak, you're kind of getting it. You're getting through with your teammates and relying on each other. You mm. know, there's eight people in the kitchen doing the jobs of 13. Right. I mean, that's yeah. just the typical setup. Um, now, at the same time, uh, the destructive nature of uh, kitchens um, are something that, you know, many of us have been aware of for decades, uh, add to that the brittle economic nature of them. They're really fragile entities. Um, it is, uh, they're not healthy environments, mm, no. <laughs> really any, any way that you can measure them. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that there are some ways you can measure them where they are certainly enjoyable for customers and, there are restaurants and restaurant groups out there that have been doing it a different way over the last four or five years for yeah. sure. Um, but it is in general a, you know, I mean, it's it's one of the, the, the parts of the pandemic that I actually think is going to be uh, beneficial for restaurants, mm. um, for those that survive. Yeah. And, you know, I'm the one who's been talking about an extinction event if we don't get right, the Restaurants right. Act passed in the Senate. So, I, you know, Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm fully hedging that we may be talking about 20 percent of restaurants uh, making it uh, out of all the ones that were open last January. We, we may only have 20 percent of them open this January. I mean, it's but you're that saying bad. that the crisis is also an opportunity to make changes well, that were needed. Well, here's the thing. We, there were a lot of people – I've never seen an industry shift so hard into the, the right way of doing things like restaurants. If this had been Absolutely. like the, the, you know, the widget factory, the shoe factory business, whatever, it would have taken 10 years to do what the restaurant industry did in three or four. Some incredible leaders remade their business, open sourced their, their work. People started talking about – uh, service charges, uh, cooperative and uh, models of uh, running their business, Absolutely. profit sharing. Um, right, because uh, the capitalistic female, nature is what I think is harmful, right? And yeah, female yeah. leadership and all this kind of stuff that kind of got ele elevated. Um, we started uh, rewarding uh, people of color long before and and long before other industries even realized they had a problem. We were talking about our problem there and the disparity between the front of the house and the back of the house. So the, the restaurant industry of the last three or four years pre-COVID was shifting and, and heading pretty quickly there. We still had a lot of work to do. I would have preferred that we were able to take our house apart brick by brick and build it back. COVID blew it down all at once. But sometimes that has some value, right? 100%. And it, 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 no one wants to see a forest burn. But we know that what's built back is healthier. It's why nature invented lightning strikes, right? Adaptation. We, we know that short term, really hard, you know. Really hard. But then all of a sudden green stuff starts growing. And because mm -hmm. of all of the uh, chemical components in the, in the burn, the soil is richer, it's more fertile, and what grows back is even stronger. And I think... 20 years from now, we're going to look back on the 2020s and 30s 
as the golden age of restaurants. Mm, um, oh, interesting. I think that this is just my, my personal take. I think yeah. we're going to have a greater variety of smaller and more democratized mm. uh, businesses. Okay. The, <laughs> the power will be concentrated in the many and not the few. I think that it's going to be harder to build giant-sized restaurant groups, uh, which is, I think, ultimately better for entrepreneurs because you'll have more people getting a piece of the pie. Um, and I think we're going to be rewarding uh, culinary entrepreneurship in restaurants in a different way. I think we are going to uh, ultimately – be more democratized in the sense, and, and we've been heading that way for 25 years, certainly, and I can point to it historically, but, you know, this, you know, white European food is not as popular as the global pantry that is going to really explode, it's, I think, over the next 20 years. It's such an exciting, years. optimistic view, and it, it just really supports is. the fact that crisis is both danger and opportunity. And yes, then at every sure. crisis, it, we crack open, we break open, and there's this well, opportunity to let go of the things that no longer are useful and to bring in the things that are life-affirming and more supportive to us problem, as human beings. The, it's such the, an the, optimistic, wonderful view. Well, but, yeah, but the problem there, and, and you know this to be true, and I'm not saying you're saying otherwise, the problem with that it just reminds me of my own story. When I got sober and I look at my diary from those first 30 days in my treatment center, I was writing over and over and over again in my books. And it was kind of like, you know, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeless and I don't want to hurt people anymore. I'm hopeless. I don't want to hurt people anymore. I'm hopeless. I don't want to hurt people anymore. I think that the situation now with restaurants is not hopeless. I am actually mm -hmm. hopeful yeah. I do not believe in a glass that's half full or empty. I believe the glass is refillable. Mm, um, however, I'm going to quote lot, you on that one. <laughs> thank you. A lot of people are going to uh, lose uh, the sadness that already we've seen to date is heartbreaking to me. There are people I know, some of my best and closest friends who have worked for 20 years to build something and seen it all wiped away. Absolutely. And that's, that's, I mean, who wants to see that? No one. So at the same time to sit with this current pain, but also putting on my prognosticator cap and trying to determine where we're headed on the compass, I think where we're headed is going to be in a better place. I wish we didn't have to go through the pain to get there, but that's another life. That's another part of life that is, you know, right. I never grew or learned anything from my happiness. The only thing that ever taught me to grow, uh, or helped me grow or taught me anything was painful shit. Absolutely. Well, you don't get to write the script in that way. You know what I mean? It's, I can't yeah. remember any time when you're like, how would you like your life to change monumentally now? And you're like, well, I'd love it if I just walked upon a basket containing a million dollars. You know, some of my worst times ever. Somebody asked me recently in an interview about my own grief. I had lost my dad in 2018 and then had been broken up with afterwards and a subsequent like uh, chain of events that I really, really was, it was just so hard at the time. And somebody asked me like, how do you get through these big times of deep grief? And, you know, I'm like, I think it's important to sometimes just stay down at the bottom and look around at all the like squiggly things and the scary monsters and all the stuff that's down there, because those are really the times where you can't necessarily see it in the moment. These are the times that are shaping you, right? And so for the next time that comes around, you're like, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this monster before. And I think a lot of us in the grief community uh, in this current situation where we're dealing with grief on a global level, I've been like, okay, well, I did learn something from that time that I so didn't want to happen. You know, you would want anything other to happen than lose someone you love or lose your business, but but it happens. And I just want to also quickly speak and just switch switch gears for a minute to talking about the grief that people in the restaurant business are experiencing right now. You know, it is loss of income. It's loss of purpose. But what I think is one of the most amazing parts of restaurants, of working from in any capacity, from being a porter to a restaurant owner, a small anywhere in between, is the capacity to be part of people's stories. You know, people come into restaurants, they get engaged there. They come there after someone in their family dies. They go on a first date. It's the place they go with their family. I mean, on and on and on. It's, it's the capacity to be engaged with shaping the story of other people's lives. And that is so filling to our hearts. You know what I mean? And... 
I wonder how we, how we process the grief of losing that. Like, how do we fill up after that loss? Because that's not something you can't go get. You know what I mean? You lose your job, you get but another job. But that fits job. with every loss. That's what you're saying about every loss. How I mean, do we fill up so, when we feel so empty? Yes, but it's yeah. so specific, in my opinion, about restaurants and about, you don't get that. Op- it's like, what a gift. You don't get that very often in life to do that well, for when, other when people. people. When people total up the the loss of restaurant closures and they speak to a trillion dollar industry going under and they speak to, you know, 15 million employees uh, from the restaurant industry, where do they go? And when they uh, speak about the special nature of the employees, right? We're still the largest employer of single moms and returning citizens and, you know, first time job seekers and last time job seekers. I mean, these are all populations that aren't going to turn around and get a job at the investment bank tomorrow, right? So it's a very, very special, special place. And, you know, we talk about the effects on the tourism industry and the supply chain that goes in, the titanic amount of money. Most restaurants, the, I think the industry average is like 7.5% profit. So we, we spend all our money and it goes out the back end and we keep very little of it. So it's very productive. We hold the trust taxes for our municipalities like sales tax and liquor tax. Um, and what's often forgotten, it comes last, and I... I tend to mention it right up front, like you, is the cultural impact. Mm. This is where we celebrate. This is where we commune. This is where we spend our time for those that can afford it. But even Mm. for those that can't, it's the neighborhood coffee shop. And I say that in the New York City sense, right? Yeah. Open 18 hours a day and, you know, breakfast served, you know, as long as they're from dawn till dusk. And, uh, you know, you can have a, a tuna fish sandwich for $5. Um, it is, it is a very, very special environment. And, you know, it, it reminds me again, I filter everything through the greatest experience of my life, which is my, uh, addiction, alcoholism recovery. You take away one thing, you have to find a replacement for it. And I think one of the things that we're being forced to do is, uh, share those moments more humbly in our own homes with our families. And I think culturally, if you look at the speed with which American culture, you know, has just increased, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, kids are too many sports groups, too many this, too many that. Everyone's, no no one eats the family meal at a table anymore. I mean, all these things we've sacrificed. And I remember when COVID struck and there were all those jokes what you mean? I have to spend all day with my wife and kids. I mean, this is this is crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then it went through. Oh my God! I'm going to kill everyone, right? <laughs> and then it became in June or whatever. All of a sudden, it was like, Oh my God! I never want this to end. This is what I've yeah. been missing, right? Especially when the weather was warm and we could really yes. enjoy people outdoors in yes. the north. Yeah. And it is it is something that I found very curious, and I. I think it will be an unattended consequence of this. You can't, you know, we're, we're all going to be, you know, sheltering in place through January. I mean, it's just like, you know, the, the fallout from Thanksgiving is just going to be, you know, massive and awful. And then there's going to be a bunch of, you know, COVID idiots that want to get together for Christmas and New Year's. And, you know, we'll be dealing with this through January. Then all of a sudden the vaccine's going to come out. And like all Americans, we're going to forget about this in March. The seasons of COVID grief. Yes. (laughs) However, I do think there is a substantial portion. I don't know whether it's 10% or 40% of people who are like, you know something? I'm spending two more nights at home. You know something? Family family dinner is now going to be irrevocable. Right. Every crisis, there's something to learn. And every crisis, there's something to take home from every situation. There really is. If you look for it, if you look for that. Yeah. And I I think that's what we're I think that's what we're taking is the importance of family. We've spent so much time marginalizing people. I I, I also and this is my my biggest hope uh, for what we take away from this. Um, Culturally, we've spent 100 years taking uh, older Americans and pushing them away out of sight. We don't want to see someone get old and age it's ugly. It's messy. It's it's scary. It's I mean, it dredges up 
so much pain. Absolutely. Yeah. But well, we don't want to, we're a, de- we're a death tonight in culture. So, yeah. Yep. And in other cultures, and I've had a chance to spend a lot of time in them, yeah. the eldest members of the family are always living at home. Their expertise is consulted endlessly. They allow, it's built-in babysitter, built-in shopper, built-in cook for as long as that person is mobile. But quite frankly, if you make the eldest person in the family feel that's their responsibility, they actually enjoy their senior years more. And if they're more active, science has shown they're actually stay healthier longer and they live longer and they stay happier longer, right? You have, Mm -hmm. you have a purpose Mm -hmm. and it is, it's amazing to me, absolutely amazing to me that, uh, in this pandemic, we have seen it, uh, disproportionately affect our elder, most uh, oldest population and, uh, people of color. So we know why it's the latter. Yes. I think we're getting a keener appreciation. I've never had so many friends say to me, I can't see grandma. Yeah. And it reminds me of the New Yorker that says, oh, I love having Broadway. And you say to them, how many shows do you see a year? Oh, five years ago, I saw Cats. That was it. (laughs) Never, never been. But I love that Broadway is in New York City, right? Yeah. you know, people now are realizing, you know, something, uh, our oldest, uh, members of society, uh, walled off, closed off, dying alone, increasing the loneliness is not right. And it's causing a lot of people to look at this. Both of my parents have passed, uh, but I took care of both sets of them during the later years of their life. I flew my mother out to Minnesota, got her a house and, uh, you know, she could be around uh, her grandchildren, grandchild and, and me and my wife at the time. But it is it, it's an amazing thing to think that this is going to hopefully in some small way also change how we view our most vulnerable citizens um, on, on all ends of the spectrum. Both, you know, why in, in and I've I've called it genocidal. I mean, because if you know you're disproportionately killing people of color and you continue to do the same thing, that's genocide. 100%. Um, And we're also sacrificing our, you know, people make, you know, horrific jokes. Uh, I find it repulsive, some of the thinking of uh, some people who are like, you know, well, this is only killing older people and the flu flu kills people every year. And it's it's like, are you out of your mind? You, you you know, crazy pants. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely nutsy. Um, We have the ability to make changes now in society that I think we're going to make based on these experiences of trauma and grief through COVID and whether it's the restaurant industry, how we treat our elders, uh, the, the equity table, whether it's, you know, racism or misogyny, take your pick, pay, pay scale, whatever it is. I think we have, we're learning, everyone is learning a lot of lessons right now. And I hope people are paying attention because, you know, if you don't pay attention when the shit is going on, you're, you're, you're not going to learn anything. Yeah, when everything gets pared down, it's the essence. It comes down to the essence of what really matters, what really has purpose. And that's what we're discovering. Absolutely. And I think central to what you're saying, Andrew, to all of these points is something I've been thinking a lot about, especially in seeing how much mutual aid has popped up. It's community. And I think in American culture, specific, you know, more so as time goes on, we're losing our sense of community and community is caring for elders and community is caring for people of all different kind of colors and creeds. And community is making sure that you don't prioritize your own passion or fun at the stake of someone else's life and community is sitting down for dinner every night with people you love if you have the opportunity and community is is mutual aid and community is what restaurants do and i think that's such a something that is so special about restaurants it is one of the if not the the number one industry in in this country and you know around the world that really holds on so sacredly to a sense of community and i think that's why the restaurant industry has just jumped in to kind of transform itself and try to try to you know figure out new solutions is cuz that's what we do it's adaptation adaptive right the the, adaptive we're the pivoters community. i tell yeah. people all the time it it's shocking to me that uh, i mean this is why i'm bullish 
on our future because food people are the most creative, wonderful people in the universe. The, the other thing that I find extraordinary is at the time, the, the restaurant industry is getting kicked in the shins like no other industry out there. I mean, it just is, we're, the, we're still the number one group of people on unemployment. The whole infrastructure of our, uh, of our restaurant culture is imploding. But look who just keeps giving and giving and giving. Who's making soup? Who's donating meals? You saw it in the run-up to Thanksgiving. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, we like to quote Viktor Frankl a lot on all different ways. Um, and he said, survival is a community event. And that's really it. That's how we survive with each other, with helping yeah. each other Absolutely. and being conscious of each other. It's, in, it's, it's been incredible to see. Andrew, we like to ask everybody the same question here in processing, which is if you could have given yourself, your younger self, and I'm, assu- I'm assuming it's yourself at kind of the beginning of your uh, journey to recovery or maybe your lowest point, but uh, some advice, knowing what you know now and everything you've been through in your journey with trauma and grief, what would that advice be for that younger person? Uh, it's easy. I mean, the <laughs> you need to listen to other people. Those shadows out there in the world are other people. They they have wisdom and thoughts and feelings, and if you listen to them, your life will be easier. Your life will work out better if you. Uh, if you take the advice of the group and filter that through your personal perspective, you will make wiser choices moving forward in life. And I did none of that. I rejected everything, anything and everything that was said to me by the smartest, greatest group of people that cared about me, teachers, parents, friends, friends, parents, psychologists, judges, lawyers, doctors. You said lifesavers were thrown you know, to you all the time and you rejected them. Roommates. I mean, yeah. I, I made it my business that every time someone threw me a life jacket while I was drowning, I threw it back because I didn't like the color orange. It's like, you know, I mean, sit in a room and ask those people, why are you throwing me a life jacket? You might learn something. I mean, it's it's other people. The world is about other people. The world is made up of other people. It's not made up of, you know, places and things. It's people, 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 people. Mm. And yeah. look what you've done with your professional life. You know, you, you reach out to all different kinds of communities. It's amazing how many different things you've done, whether it's, you know, feeding. What's the Feeding America? Wonderful show. Oh, what's then, eating America? What's eating America? And yes. then what is your latest show? Because that's going into people's homes as they're family, cooking. Family dinner. Love mm. it. Oh, I want to show it. the world what it's like at people's dinner tables. I think okay. there's tremendous wisdom there. Mm-hmm. I think so too, and especially now in a time when uh, things are so extremely, extremely divided. I think realizing those commonalities—the thing that we all eat, we all love—you know, our families. We all want peace. We all, yeah, we all have roots. We all have. Yeah you know, just basic human needs. I think that's such an important, an extremely important thing to do and finding and focusing on the commonality. I mean, this is such a time in so many ways, both politically uh, through what's happened with the pandemic, like just rebuilding as uh, we have the opportunity to rebuild and get closer. And I hope that we take that. And I think it's really important for people like yourself who have an influence to be able to be like, yeah, Let's go ahead in this direction where we explore commonality rather than what divides us. I mean, is that the goal for you with this with this new show? One thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, we've been touching on this the whole the whole talk that we've had, but this is an opportunity. People, anyone listening, you know what I mean? And, and the crisis is opportunity thing is just so central to I think what we're chatting about. Um, and I hope that anyone out there that feels like, you know, I know sometimes it's hard to get the message when someone's yet like you were just mentioning it. You know, I think uh, at best, sometimes the message just sticks in the back of your head, even if you're not ready to if you're in crisis right now and you're maybe not ready to be able to use this crisis and and rise like a phoenix from the ashes at this moment. I hope that the opportunity of crisis message sticks somewhere with you. It sticks onto your clothes. It doesn't wash off. And when you're ready to be able to use it, that you that you pick it up and use it because we are in such a rich time right now, you know, even though it feels so destitute and sad and difficult at, at so many turns, there is so much richness here and there's so much to learn and there's so much heart. And, you know, talking, Andrew, about- and So many good around, people. 
so many good people about looking around at the other people and realizing they're not shadows. You know, yeah, there are people everywhere you look who are just doing things and, and not even like doing things that are necessarily so impressive, getting up and going to work in the midst of such uh, difficulty is is doing something. You know what I mean? Like there's yep. just wonder, wonderful people all around really trying so hard to to get through this together. And it's really impressive and wonderful. And we're doing our podcast today on Giving Tuesday. Yes, we are. Yes. Any, any Giving Tuesday shout outs that you would like to do, either of you? Oh my God. I mean, j- tons. Uh, we're actually, uh, I mean, we have a huge partner. I would encourage everyone to go to andrewzimmer.com and click on our partners page and our charitable entities page. We do an, a ton of work. We're supporting 14, 15 different entities for this Giving Tuesday and trying to talk about them uh, all day long and just spread the love. Uh, but andrewzimmer.com is the home for all of that. And I would encourage people to sign up for our newsletter where they get lots of information about all that. Wonderful. That's great. This has been such a pleasure in so many different ways. And for me, it's also going into my roots because I feel like we have a similar roots history. You know, my, my father's name was Silverman and he changed it to Silvern. So, and we have, you know, that, and that heritage, when I heard you talk about, I I saw an article, you're talking about Thanksgiving and you said you were making turkey soup and turkey tetrazzini. Those are things I grew up making. I, I, I had a stool. My, I started cooking from a stool in my mother's kitchen, my Hungarian, my Hungarian mother's kitchen where I learned to make strudel. So I feel so, not only so connected on social issues and political issues and love for restaurants and food and to love to cook. I mean that's Zara and I. If you could ever see us in the kitchen together, we and we haven't been together in the cute. kitchen for <laughs> for eight months. Yeah, so it's been yeah. just such a pleasure to uh, to join with you today on such a deep emotional level, as well as an intellectual level and a social level. Really, oh, thank I, you so much. I it's appreciate been, it. Thank you so much. It was a joy to be with you today. Yeah, it's been a real gift. I just want to read one quote. Uh, as we wrap up, because this was something that I thought was very profound. Speaking about the, uh, the restaurant industry and, and grief. It's a quote from Shanti Diva. Um, with perfect and unyielding faith, with steadfastness, respect, courtesy, with modesty and conscientiousness, work calmly for the happiness of others. I like that. Thank you. Andrew, it was really, I will just reiterate what Bobby said, really just such a wonderful time. And thank you for joining us. I know that, you know, the the history of storytelling is based in what we call the hero's journey. And I know that it can be so helpful for people who are struggling to be able to have some kind of reflection of what it looks like to to be to be able to rise from what feels like ashes and hardship. And so your influence in that way is and being so public and speaking so openly about the trauma and the and the difficulties you've had in your life and been able to overcome, it really means something. When I lost, you know, I I had to give up my restaurant and my father, I have had all these times in my life where I felt at deep rock bottom. And something for me that always helped was kind of just like looking at people that I admired and seeing if they had ever gone through these hard times as some kind of, uh, some kind of proof that it can change, you know, because feeling desperate is a really common feeling and it's a really scary feeling. And so yep. I think what you do by speaking so openly about your struggles, uh, whether you know it or not, really does impact and help so many other people be able to thrive. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll see you later. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. 
Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.